Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now. Revelation chapter 20. And I want to just say a quick thank you to Jeremy and to our ladies for leading us in worship. Um, Cody would love to be here, but he has somewhere that he needs to be a little more importantly as his baby boy was born uh, this week. So Wyatt is here and mother's doing okay and Cody is home with her. So Jeremy, thank you for stepping in to help lead us and ladies, thank you for participating and leading us as well. Revelation chapter 20. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. We're going to make our way through the end of the chapter. And I'll, I'll just be honest with you, last week we had a couple of different things moving with a, with a wedding going on, and I had to leave to go participating in that. So I had intended to preach the first part of this sermon last week. We just didn't get to it. So we're going we're gonna to cover it this week. But it's a, it's a beautiful passage um, in that it teaches us some wonderful things about God, and it teaches us the finality of our great enemy. But this is also a challenging passage. It's a, it's a fearful idea revealed here for those who are outside of God's grace, who are going in this world on their own. And so there's, there's truth here that we all need to hear and be motivated by. So I'm going to read, if you would, just follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is God's word. Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, every week we gather because of your mercy and grace and your kindness to us to, to worship you, to remember your saving love through Christ and to be nourished by the truth of your word. And sometimes the truth of your word comforts us. Sometimes it afflicts us. But it always accomplishes your purpose. Today is no exception. And I pray that these words, that this passage would comfort your people, 
that it would help us to see the, the big picture and the story that is unfolding before us of how you are accomplishing your saving purpose in this world. But also, Father, I pray, strange though it may sound, I pray that you would afflict us where we need to be afflicted. Where we've put our hope in ourselves, or where we've put our hope in this world, or where we've put our hope in success, or where we've put our hope in our morality, or where we've put our hope in our financial stability, or whatever it might be, wherever we have placed our hope outside of a hope that is in Christ alone, Father, I pray that you would unsettle us this morning, that you would allow us to see the end, this vision of what is to come, and that we would rightly be motivated to bow before you, to honor you, to turn from sin, and to trust in the Savior that you've sent to us. So Father, would you accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word, whatever it may be, and would you use me to do that? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stories. They play a huge role in our lives. Whether you like to read stories or watch them on stage or screen, or maybe you're one who likes to write your own stories. Stories do so much more than simply entertain us. They, they teach us. They transport us into new worlds. They teach us about ourselves. They teach us about history. They teach us about God. They teach us about man. And in general, good stories help prepare us for the life that God has called us to live. One pastor has said, human beings are story-shaped creatures. Think about it. Whenever we have to answer the big questions of life, whenever we, we have to teach big lessons to our children, whenever we want to convey something to someone, we don't talk like we're writing a white paper. We tell a story. When we answer the questions, why am I here? What is my purpose? What should I do? What's going to happen when we die? When we answer these questions, we tend to tell a story. And we are this way because God made us this way. He made us to be people who love stories, and he's actually placed us within his grand story. It's largely through story, the story of Scripture, the, the narrative of the Bible, it's through this that we come to know God. God has revealed himself to us, not just in a manual, like, you know, deity for dummies, but in a story, a, a series of stories that help us to know God and to understand Him and to, at some level, get our hands around who He is, even though that's virtually impossible. God has written us a story. It's a story that begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's a story that ends with, surely I am coming soon. Amen. God is the master storyteller. And as we come to the end of the book of Revelation, it is important that we see that the story that God is telling us is coming full circle. The things and the, the themes and the, the, the stories that helped to set up the stage for the, the story of God, those things are going to come to an end pretty soon as we continue to study. Let me, let me just try to point this out to you. In Genesis 1, the Bible begins with God creating. He creates the heavens and the earth. And, and that's the, the stage set for what is to come next. And what comes next is God creating mankind as the pinnacle of his creation. 
He places man in a garden. He gives man a responsibility. And then into the garden slithers the serpent, the ancient deceiver, the one who comes and introduces sin and death into the world. There's the conflict. And then we watch as the pages of Scripture are turned. We watch as all of humanity is affected by and corrupted by sin to the point of the flood in Genesis 6. But even after the flood, man's propensity for rebellion and sin is still seen all the way up until Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel where all of humanity is gathered to make a name for themselves. And then that's the stage for the story. That's the stage, the setting for all of human history. Creation, man with God in the garden, the introduction of sin and death through Satan, all of humanity corrupted, and then Babel destroyed. Well, guess what we've seen in reverse order? That same story being told. God made a promise in Genesis 3 that not only was this corruption going to play out, but that he was going to come and make all things new. He was going to right all of the wrongs. And what we've been studying in the Revelation is we're seeing God taking all of those stories that Genesis reveals to us, and he's been resolving every one of them step by step. For instance... In this great story, we learned of Babel, but instead of Babel, we've seen the sinful, symbolic city of Babylon fall. That was in Revelation 18. The beast and the false prophet who corrupted humanity and led them astray, that, they met their match in Revelation 19. Here in Revelation 20, we finally see that Satan, the ancient serpent, is defeated and he gets his just deserts. And then once that is done, all of humanity, once again, comes into the presence of God to be judged or rewarded. And then we see the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. This is the same old story being told from a different vantage point for us. As God's story closes, we see the curse of sin overturned. We see the enemies of God defeated one by one. God is making all things right, and then he makes all things new. The revelation ends by showing that God will resolve all of the conflicts caused by sin. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see two pieces of this resolution. We are going to see Satan... The, the ancient deceiver from the garden finally meet his match, and then we're going to see all of mankind stand before the judgment seat of God. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's look back at the text. Look back at verse 7 with me as we see Satan's end displayed through this symbolic vision. John tells us, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. Now, I want to point this out. The vantage point throughout the chapter of Revelation 20, the vantage point has changed multiple times, and it's going to continue to do that. If you remember in chapter 20, verse 1, John is, is on earth, and he's seeing an angel descend from heaven with a key. And that's when Satan is bound, and the thousand years begin. And then that, that shifts over, and John sees the thrones. And upon these thrones are the souls of those who are beheaded. That's a vantage point from heaven. So he starts out on earth, and then he ends up in heaven. Well, now he's on earth again, and he's seeing what's happening. He's seeing what Satan is going to do on the earth as he is released from his prison. 
And at this point, he tells us that the thousand years that we've been studying over the last couple of weeks, that thousand years which is symbolic of the age of the church, the time that we're living in now, the time between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, that, that period of time has come to an end. The gospel age has come to an end. And once again, man's greatest spiritual enemy comes to deceive the nations. He is freed up so that he can have that kind of influence. And we see in this that John uses battle terminology. It's symbolic of what it's going to look like, what it's going to be like as Satan begins to stir up all of the nations against Christ and against his church. And I I don't know what you've been thinking over the last few weeks, at least not all of you. I do know what some of you have been thinking because we've had a lot of good conversations over the last few weeks. We're 56 weeks into our study of the Revelation, and I know a lot of you are just waiting for me to get into the thousand years. Um, And so it's been great to have these conversations. But one of the conversations that we've had is people have been asking me, do I believe that we have already reached the point in history where Satan has been released? My answer is twofold. I don't know, but I don't think so. We have reached a deeply troubling place within our American culture. Actually, within all of Western culture, we've reached a very troubling place where the foundations, the biblical foundations for all of Western society and Western culture and Western morality, those foundations are being just destroyed constantly over and over again. And they're being replaced with something that is antithetical to the biblical foundations. And we're seeing this happen before our very eyes, we've seen in a very short period of time the morality of our culture completely erode. And, and I can understand the question. We've seen it erode to such a degree that we begin to ask, is this the end? Is this the end? Has Satan been released? Is he already deceiving the nations again in, in the full way that we believe that he will according to this vision? And I would just simply say this in response. I don't think so. I don't know, but I don't think so. And here's why I don't think so. While our culture is abandoning biblical norms at an alarming rate, the gospel is spreading around the world at an unparalleled pace. We tend, I'm not saying this is you, but we tend to be very uh, focused on what's happening in America. There's a broad world out there. God is moving in the world right now at a pace that just baffles the mind of most people who are studying. Sociologists just don't quite see and understand what's going on. The gospel is spreading. It is estimated that the world percentage of Christians will increase to 35% by 2050, which surprises sociologists because the statistical high point of Christianity was the year 1900, when 34.5% of the world's population was Christian in one form or another. So we're seeing that rise beyond what we would expect. Here's a quote on this issue. The decline of Christianity in the global north, that's our hemisphere, um, is being outpaced by the rise of Christianity in the global south. Places like Africa and Asia and Latin America and Oceania. Christians in sub-Saharan Africa generally have higher birth rates and people from other religions are continuing to 
to convert to Christianity in China, in India, in Cambodia, and Mongolia, and elsewhere throughout Asia. So while we're seeing an erosion of biblical foundations in our culture, the gospel is spreading like mad all over the world. So there are some statistical reasons why I don't necessarily believe that we've come to this point in history yet. And I also believe that when that day comes, it will be swift. Western culture, which has relied upon Christian philosophical foundations, is eroding, but the gospel is spreading. So, I don't know how to answer the question other than to answer it that way. Maybe you'll answer it a little differently. We can continue to have that conversation. But here's what we do know, at least from the vision that John gives us. He tells us what it's going to look like when Satan is finally released. John sees the the world gathering for an army gathering to battle from the four corners of the earth. That's a a reference to all of the nations, all the peoples of the earth. And, And this is really nothing new. And I say it's nothing new because it's nothing new compared to where we've been in the Revelation. We've seen this happen multiple times. We've seen battle language used. We've seen the amassing of the forces of the world against the church multiple times. I'm not going to spell all those out, but if you want to take notes on this, in Revelation chapter 11, verses 7 through 10, we've already seen this picture one time. In Revelation 16, verses 12 through 16, we saw it again. And then just a few weeks ago in Revelation 19, verses 17 through 21, we see this battle language, we see this symbolic uh, amassing of the forces of the earth against the people of God. We've seen this before. This is nothing new to the book. And it's not as though we should realize and understand that the world's going to amass their forces against the church multiple times throughout chronological history. Remember, we're studying this book and we see patterns develop. We're seeing recapitulation We're seeing the same thing told from different vantage points. That's where we've been. And we've also seen the reference to Gog and Magog before. When's the last time you guys read Ezekiel 38 and 39? Probably not recently. But you're familiar with the terms Gog and Magog? You're probably familiar with it mainly because of this. But this is is like the third time that John has actually mentioned this phrase, or not, not the name specifically, but that Old Testament text. It comes from Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And in the story, Ezekiel is talking about the the pagan nations of the world uh, amassing an army to come against the chosen people of God. And there are no nations named Gog and Magog. They're symbolic. They're symbolic names. And, And Ezekiel was using those names in a symbolic way. And John is using those names in a symbolic way as well. And he's telling us that when Satan is released, when the end comes, there's going to be this amassing of forces against the church. Now, do I believe that there's actually going to be a war? Not necessarily. I think this is symbolic language. The point he's telling us is that the nations will not just be turned against Christ and the gospel, but they will be actively opposing Christ and the church. And that's been happening throughout the church age, but it's going to get worse. But notice some other things. Notice in verse 7 that Satan is released. He doesn't break free on his own power. He doesn't have that power. Satan is released according to the purpose and plan of God. When the plan of God is complete and all of God's people are gathered in, the Lord will remove his hand of restraint from Satan because the end has finally come. Notice also the the imagery of this battle doesn't really tell us what the battle looks like. It just tells us the preparation for the battle. 
They, they mass their forces, they begin to move, but as soon as the devil's army surrounds the camp of God's people, the fire of heaven falls. It says this in verse 8, it says, In number they are like the sand on the seashore. And this is talking about the unbelieving forces of the world. They marched across the breadth of the earth, surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Now this seems to indicate that there's going to be a larger number of unbelievers in the world at this time than there are believers, which is one of the reasons why I do not hold to a post-millennial view. And if you do, that's fine. But notice again the contrast here. The contrast is there's a thousand years, there's this long symbolic period of time where the gospel has free reign to the ends of the earth. And then when Satan is released, he only has a very short time. And that contrast is meant to be seen by us. But even still, there's a large number of unbelievers. They're, they're, they're as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But the battle of God's people against the world is not going to be decided by our numbers. The strength of Christ's army isn't found in numbers. It's found in its captain. Christ is the one who sends the fire from heaven. The deceived nations surround the army of the camp of God's people. The unbelieving world stands united in opposition to the people of God, but the fire of God falls, devouring the world's army. And that's what we should expect if we know our Bibles, right? That's exactly what we should expect. Do you remember when God leads the Hebrews out of Egypt, when he is um, all the plagues have happened and God leads them out and before they get very far, the army of Pharaoh begins to follow them and then they find themselves between a, a, a sea and an army and what does God do? Well, the fire of God falls to protect his people and then God opens a way that no one would have ever expected and in the same way, Yahweh still fights for us and when the end comes, he will protect his people to the very end. We should expect something like this. And then in verse 10, it tells us, And the devil who deceived them, deceived the world, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. We learned that in chapter 19. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I really think that forever and ever means forever and ever. In this passage, we see the fire of heaven. And we see the fire of hell. Satan, final enemy, suffers a crushing defeat beneath the feet of Christ. And then he's cast into the lake of fire along with the other enemies, the beast and the false prophet. And this scene rounds out the destruction of those five enemies of God that we've been talking about. But this is Satan, the one introduced to us in Genesis 3. The, the, the ancient serpent, the great deceiver, the first to oppose God, the last to be taken off the board. That's the story being resolved for us. Satan is the ultimate loser. And we've seen this throughout the book. We've seen this throughout the Revelation. He, he sought to devour the male child in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 5, but he failed. He sought to go after and make war with the angels in heaven in Revelation 12, 19, or 12, 9, but again, he failed. He tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness before his earthly ministry, but he failed 
He perhaps thought he had succeeded when Christ was crucified on the cross and placed within a tomb, but the resurrection tells us that he failed yet again. Satan fails over and over and over again. And today he is bound. He is bound and limited in his power to deceive the nations, but he will be released. And when his release finally comes, all of his efforts to destroy the church will be taken from him in a moment of divine fire. That's the story the scriptures tell us. He's going to be cast into the lake of fire, tormented day and night forever and ever. The words of Christ prove true that upon the rock of the gospel, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's Satan's end. But John sees more. Look back at the text. Look at verse 11. The vantage point shifts a little bit. We go back into heaven and we see the great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. This is a throne that is referred to as great and white. Great megas, it simply describes the importance of this throne. There is no greater throne in all of the universe and it is white, it is pure, it is dazzlingly white, which is a description of its holiness. It is a, a throne And who sits upon thrones? Rulers sit upon thrones. Kings sit upon thrones. This is the the ruler of all rulers, the Lord of all lords. This is the king of all kings who sits upon this throne. And, And his name is not told here. It doesn't tell us who is sitting on the throne. And this is consistent throughout the Revelation. John has this Hebrew mindset where he doesn't name the one seated on the throne in these visions. He just describes him for us. But when we read the rest of the New Testament, we understand who it is that's seated upon this throne. In Matthew chapter 25, the Lord Jesus himself says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus is telling us there a picture of, He's telling us about the end that is to come and how it will involve his revealing of himself and also the amassing of humanity for the purpose of judgment. The one seated on this throne in Revelation 20 and verse 11 is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this vision, he has finally come in in his glory. He has been revealed in his second coming. That has occurred, even though it's not described in great detail here. And what follows is the separation of the sheep, which is a reference to believers in Christ, from the goats, those who've rejected the gospel of Christ and have gone their own way. And friends, there is no more solemn moment in all of human history than the moment that John reveals to us right here. This is the final day of history as we know it. This is the day when all of the questions about God's existence will be answered beyond doubt, and it's also the moment when our lives will be called to account before our Creator. This is the final judgment. Even creation itself, when the throne comes into view, even creation itself recognizes the solemnity of this moment. It says that the heavens and the earth will flee from God's glorious presence. And we understand it because in Revelation 21, a new heaven and new earth will be will be created. 
So we know what's going on here. And we have some other passages of Scripture that give us some clarity here. In 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 10, we read, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In a similar way that God judged the earth with water in Genesis chapter 6, the picture that is painted in the New Testament is God is going to judge the earth with fire when the end comes. But does that mean that the earth as we know it is going to be completely destroyed so that it disappears? Not exactly. In a similar fashion that the the earth that was flooded in judgment in Genesis 6 didn't disappear, but it was changed. I believe that the scriptures give us some indication that the earth will be changed by this. Peter talks about heaven and earth, and this is in Acts chapter 3. He talks about heaven and earth being renewed, being restored, and that's different than it being dissolved away completely. Being renewed, being restored. The substance and existence of the earth isn't fully annihilated. It is changed, though. It's made new. It's renewed so that the defects of the old world are removed. All the effects of sin All of the corruption of rebellion, all of that will be done away with, which is exactly what God promised would happen. The fall will be reversed. The corruption of creation on the earth itself. Paul tells us in Romans that the earth itself groans, longing to be set free from the bondage that it is in because of sin. And on this particular day, the earth will no longer groan. It will be set free, restored to its original glory, made new, is the language of Scripture. But before that happens, God tells us that man must be called to account. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, this is John again, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The picture here is of all people, all of humanity, past, present, and for us, future. They will all be called to account, be called to stand before the judge of all the earth. And I don't believe at this point that John sees souls only. I believe in the chronology of this, if we will, in this vision that John is seeing body and soul. The resurrection has occurred here. And they are standing before the throne of God, awaiting either entry into eternity with God or the second death that he talks about in this passage. But he says, all souls, great and small, doesn't matter if you're important or unimportant. Every soul will be called to account. No one can hide from this. Even death cannot hide from the face of Christ in this. The dead will be summoned by the power who made them. Whether you're in the sea or death in Hades, it doesn't matter. That's the point here. All will be called to account before God. This is the great judgment at the end of days. And this judgment is not just highlighted by all of humanity, it's, it's also highlighted by books. And you'll notice that there are books and then there is a book. There's a distinction being made here. And this is another callback to Old Testament prophets. This is a callback to Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7 and in Daniel chapter 12, he tells us about this day. He prophesied about the judgment of God that was to come. And John is revealing it to us a little more. 
He's giving us a bigger picture of what's going on. But Daniel was the first to mention the books that we were going to be called to account and the books would be open. Now, ultimately, I think these books are symbolic of the memory of God. He forgets nothing. He sees nothing. And he is perfectly holy and just. And he will attribute to the guilty what they deserve. That's the point. But Daniel was the one who told us about the books, one to record the deeds of men and then another to record those who are appointed to eternal life. The book of our deeds, or the books of our deeds, it's plural, you can see it, there's a distinction in the text. The books that record the deeds, they tell the story of our life. They tell everything we've done, whether good or evil. Every thought, every word, every action. Even the secret thoughts, the scriptures tell us are known by our God. Even the the secret thoughts of our hearts will be recounted on this particular day because God knows it all. And no one is going to get away from this. The dead were judged according to what they had done. The sea gave up their dead. Death and Hades gave up their dead. And all the dead are judged. That's the picture. The focus here, I believe, is primarily on the unbelieving dead. Those who refuse to acknowledge God's existence, refuse to submit to God's truth, refuse to submit to Christ as Savior. And let me just be honest with you, friend. If if you are not ready for this day, this message is for you. Are you prepared to stand before your Creator? God is gracious in even giving this to us, in showing us what the end will be. He is warning us. He is preparing us. And he is not just telling us about the judgment that is to come on that day, but he gives us the picture of the gospel. He says, look, in my love, I've given you a way out, the only way out, making the greatest sacrifice that the world has ever seen in the sacrifice of the Son of God to save sinners like you and me from this judgment day. Are you prepared for that? Imagine if, and this is a terrifying thought, but imagine if we didn't have to wait until that day to have our thoughts, actions, and and words put before us. But imagine if even today we were allowed to see our thoughts, our actions on display everywhere we went. Like everywhere we went was Times Square and there's screens everywhere and everything we looked at was just, and everything we thought and everything we felt was just displayed on the screen for everybody to see. Imagine if you were to walk into a room with all of your friends or maybe all of your family or all of your coworkers, and the moment you walked into the room, your thoughts began to be displayed on the screens. That's a terrifying concept. And it shows us what's in us. It shows us where our thoughts go. And we have to rein those thoughts in. Even as believers who've lived a life seeking to glorify Christ for a long time, we still have to rein those thoughts in and and make them captive to Christ, which is what we're commanded to do. But imagine if that were true. What if instead of me standing here and preaching about our general experience of life in this world, imagine if I was able to see your thoughts and present them to you? Friend, I promise you, I I don't have that power and I don't want that power. I can't see into your heart. I can't see into your life. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what you've done unless you've told me. But God has that power. He knows it all. The end from the beginning. The days of your life were written in the books. It's, it's, it's recorded throughout Scripture. And there's coming a day 
when you will stand before him and that book will be opened and your life will be called to account according to your deeds. For the unbeliever, this is a terrifying reality because there is no defense against the holiness of God. There's no defense against the perfect memory of God. But for the Christian, before the Christian, remember something. On that day, we will be standing before our Redeemer and our friend. There are two books. And while the first set of books focuses on the unbeliever, the second book is of far greater importance. The second book is referred to as the book of life. But if you want to know its full name, you go back to Revelation chapter 13 and we learn that it is the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This book has been mentioned six times in the Revelation, in chapter 3, 13, 17, twice in chapter 20, and, that, and then once in chapter 21. The book of life of the Lamb is filled with the names of those who have been born again by the Spirit's power to trust in Christ by faith. This book is the roster of the redeemed. And on that day, we need not fear any further judgment. It is filled with the names of those who have embraced the gospel, who turned from their sin and are trusting in Christ alone. And the difference between those who die having rejected Christ to live life on their own terms and those who die having given their lives to Christ is the difference between facing judgment on your own or facing the judge who died to pay your ransom. Very different category. Verse 14 tells us, then then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Babylon has fallen. The beast and the false prophet have fallen. Satan has fallen. And they're all cast into the lake of fire. And now we see the second death, the judgment of humanity, and what we understand to be hell, the eternal conscious torment of hell, is being pictured here. The sentence to be carried out for those who face the judgment of God is the lake of fire. It's the thing we don't like to talk about. It's the thing that the scriptures continually point us to, to motivate us to repent of our sin and trust in Christ, but it is clearly taught. This is This is referring to a physical as well as a spiritual torment that does not end. And we've seen this over and over throughout this book. Jesus even told the disciples about this. In that same passage I mentioned earlier in Matthew 25, Jesus says this, On that day I will say to you, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and these will go away into eternal punishment. That's what this is about. All of the enemies of God are there. And so will be those whose names are not found written in the book of life. And the question that should be pressing on our minds is, how does my name get in the book of life? From our vantage point, I'll close with some answer to this question. From our vantage point, God's story is not complete. It's not complete. It's still being written. From our vantage point, we're still involved in the plot. 
The stage was set back in Genesis 1 and 2. The conflict was introduced in Genesis 3. The great conflict of human history that is still playing out in the world today is that man has been led into rebellion and sin, and man continues in that rebellion against God. That's the problem. That's the conflict of our world. That's what's gone wrong in our hearts and in our world. The story of our world is the story of our sinful attempt to reject the Word of God in hopes to make a name for ourselves. Our problem is sin, but the solution to the problem, the resolution to God's story, it's already been introduced. Jesus Christ came as the long-awaited, long-prophesied Messiah of God, the anointed one of God, the one and only Son of God. And he came to live a perfect life that we can never hope to live and to lay down his life to set his people free. He obeyed his Father perfectly so that the book of his life is perfect. And he grants that access to those who trust in him. He took the punishment that we deserved. He paid our price. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his stripes we are healed, and by his death we have the forgiveness of sins. The book of the life of the Lamb is filled with every name of every human being who turned from their sin, trusting in the sacrifice of Christ to forgive them. So the answer to the question is, how do I get my name written in the book? You turn from your sin and you trust in Christ. He's the only hope we have. He's the only hope we have here and he's the greatest hope. Because this is what God has done for us. This book is filled with the names of every Christian who has received Jesus Christ by faith. And oh, by the way, even though we are from our vantage point, the story is still being written, the Bible tells us over and over and over that the names were written in this book before the foundation of the world. God is accomplishing his purpose and plan even today. And here's what Jesus says those who have trusted in him will hear on that day in Matthew 25. He says, he will say to us, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. See, in this vision, we see a throne of justice, but we also see a throne of grace and mercy if you will receive it. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for this vision, this picture that we have, not only of what is to come, but what is a comfort to those who believe. I thank you that our great enemy will meet his end. You will do what is just. And I thank you that you have let us know the end before it comes so that we can be prepared And you've given your spirit and your word to show us these things. And now I pray that you would open our hearts to receive Christ again. I pray that you would move among us by your spirit's power to show us our great need and to let your gospel bear fruit in the hearts of your people. Give us comfort. And and Lord, I pray also for those who do not believe or maybe they entered this place not believing. I pray that you would quicken them to faith and that their hope would be fixed wholly on Christ, and they can look to this day not with fear, but with a joyful expectation of full redemption, because that's our hope. I thank you for your word. I thank you for all of this, and I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.